Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We're recording this episode on April 8th, 2020, and I am Anna Garcia. As you can see, we are continuing to record these episodes under the Safer at Home guidelines. Welcome to my kitchen. Joining us today is Oxygen host and former Los Angeles County criminal prosecutor, Lonnie Coombs. Hi, Lonnie. How are you? I am good, Anna. It's so nice to see you. I love your kitchen. It looks so cozy. I (laughs) realize that my wall looks so sterile and bland. I'm going to need to judge that after I've seen how nice yours looks. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is like my crazy kitchen. People are always commenting on YouTube about, I have all this stuff on the refrigerator. You know, I have the magnets. I'm old school that way. I love the old photos. (laughs) Me too. I just so homey, you know, it's nice. And you got the flowers going, the happy daffodils. Yes, I did. I've been buying daffodils for every episode because I feel that we are all shut in, in our yeah. homes. We're so disconnected and I'm just trying to make things a little cheerier. And of course this week is Passover and Easter and, mm-hmm. yeah. and we generally would be together, but we're all isolated. I know. I know. It's really strange, but I call daffodils the happy flower. Because they just make you so happy when you see them. So it was nice to see them there in your kitchen. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lonnie. I'm so glad that you're with us today. You're a regular and you, we always love your insight. And we've got some great cases this week. Mm-hmm. First, we've got a man in Jupiter, Florida, who has been arrested in New Mexico after being charged with murdering and kidnapping his wife after she suddenly disappeared two weeks ago. But no one has found her body. So... That's going to be an interesting case to break down. And then in Georgia, authorities have made an arrest in the killing of 18-year-old Vanessa Honey Malone, who was fatally shot in 2012. So she apparently had walked into an apartment where there was an armed robbery and she was a victim in all of this. But first, a word from one of our newest sponsors, ExpressVPN. Hey, everyone. As a true crime correspondent, I am constantly working from a ton of different locations and traveling all over the country, and I need to stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world of crime. And that is where ExpressVPN comes in. When I connect to ExpressVPN, it makes sure that my internet is secure and I can be protected. 
And if you don't know, VPN stands for a virtual private network. And here's what's really important. Because I'm always in airports or in coffee shops or hotels, I don't like to ever use their free wireless system because I know that it's not secure. So with ExpressVPN, I know I am safe, I am protected, and I can do all the work I need to with a secure connection. Plus, ExpressVPN gives me access to unrestricted parts of the Internet so I'm able to really figure out my backstory, do that deep dive, that document search that I need to do on the Internet. And the best part of it is that I can do it really quickly because ExpressVPN only invests in premium servers, making them consistently faster than other VPN providers. So if you want to find out how to get three months for free, click on the link in the description box below or go to expressvpn.com slash TCD for True Crime Daily. Once again, that's expressvpn.com slash TCD to find out how you can get three months for free. Our first case today is an update on a cold case investigation, which I did for Crime Watch Daily nearly three years ago. And every time I meet a family and I interview them for a case, I feel that that case becomes very personal to me, and this case is one of those. So I am really pleased today to be able to report that there has been an arrest in this cold case. Eight years after the murder of 18-year-old Vanessa Malone, they finally have arrested someone. Now, she goes under the name Honey. That's what her mom, her sister, and her friends always called her, and Lonnie Police in DeKalb County, Georgia, have arrested 34-year-old Donald Ash, who goes by the name of Mercy. Everybody's got like a nickname here. And he was charged with second-degree murder, concealing facts, and making false statements. He was arrested last Friday on April the 3rd. And I presume that you as a prosecutor, you also have been emotionally connected and invested in a lot of the families that you've helped. So when something like this happens, it's huge. Oh, absolutely. You know, when you talk to the families, that pain is so prevalent in their lives and in their faces and in their bodies as they talk to you. And it touches you and it it impacts you. And as the years go by, like in this case, the years went by and nothing was happening. And then eight years later, something happens and the family, you know, has got to be so glad and grateful. You know, the the law enforcement, sometimes we get frustrated and think, well, are they doing anything? Clearly this police department was working on this all these years, just plugging away at it, trying different things. And finally they've been able to get an arrest and it's, you know, a a great uh, thing for them um, and a wonderful thing for the family. They, They've spent hundreds of hours, investigative hours on this case. And when I talked with them three years ago, they said to me, they promised that they would never give up. And I have to believe them. In fact, one of the officers who I interviewed, who was one of the original officers on the case, um, he had a photo of Honey Malone on his desk. And he said he kept it on his desk every day to be reminded every single day that she was still waiting for justice. So clearly it was personal for the officers. And you always hope that every murder case is treated the same way. Yeah. You know, you, you always hope that the same level of investment and clearly, you know, in this case, they, they really never gave up. And in fact, I spoke with the lead investigator last night, mm-hmm. uh, Sergeant Lynn Schuler. I caught him at his desk. It was 11 p.m. back in Georgia. And, mm-hmm. you know, he said, obviously they were very 
happy that they were able to make an arrest because they had made this commitment to the family. But he also said to me that their work is not done yet because there are at least two accomplices that they're going after. So he doesn't feel like he can sit back and accept any congratulations yet because his work is not done yet. I thought that was very interesting. You know. Yeah, yeah. And since you, as we get into the facts, it's clear that this person is not necessarily the person who may have been the trigger man, right? The person who actually killed her. We don't know that. But it's interesting to hear it because it does sound like it's the work of more than one person based on these facts. And now that they do have someone arrested, this is where the prosecutor can also get involved and talk to him about, you know, do you want to help us? Do you want to, you know, tell us what you know? Since this one person's already in custody, maybe they want to try and use him to try and find out who the other people are. You know, they talk about maybe cutting a deal or something to try and, you know, get those other people. So now it starts to become almost a a chess game as well, besides just going after that evidence. And the other thing that Sergeant Schuler said, which is really important, he said to me that there is more than just physical evidence that is tying mercy to the crime. So I find that interesting because um, the evidence that he says uh, pretty much nailed his coffin, if you will, was blood evidence, blood evidence that was left at the scene. But apparently there's more than physical evidence, which leads me to believe someone may be cooperating. I don't know, but that's what I think. So, Lonnie, let's go back and look at the facts of this murder. This murder occurred in October of 2012. Honey Malone was this beautiful 18-year-old woman. She had the most stunning green eyes that you'd ever seen. She worked at a dress shop and she lived with her mother in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is a pretty tough area of Georgia. She um, was working the night that she was killed. She worked late that night. Her mother picked her up at the dress shop. They came home and Honey tells her mom, mom, I'm going to go out and visit with some friends. She had some friends at the apartment complex next door to them and she was going to walk over and, and hang out with them. And police say that that apartment that she went to was a known drug house. And apparently Honey walked in during an armed robbery. And that's the story that the police have always believed to be the case. Detectives say that somewhere between three and six armed robbers were there to steal money and the drugs in the house. They tied up two people who survived, but the only person who was shot was Honey. And it's really important right now to remember that Mercy, the man who has been arrested, was in that apartment when Honey was murdered. Here's a clip now from the original investigation I did for Crime Watch Daily. Cops believe Honey stumbled upon an armed robbery. I believe it was a home invasion robbery with the main purpose to steal the drugs and the money out of that apartment. Invasion may be an understatement. Honey's friends who were in the apartment told cops between three and six men with guns kicked down the door. They claim they were beaten and tied up with a belt and the cord of an electric razor and herded into the shower. And then gunshots pierced the night. Honey was shot once in the back. A second shot to the chest, the bullet plunging straight through her heart. While the uh, robbers were ransacking the apartment, I believe Honey walked in. And when she turned to leave, that's when she was shot. When she turned to leave? Yes. So you think she was trying to get out of there when she was shot? Yes. When you associate yourself with friends like that, you know, 
You can be brought down. The gunman dragged Honey's body across the carpet, leaving that trail of blood. She was taken into the master bedroom and dumped face down on some dirty clothes in the closet. But why shoot Honey? Collateral damage. She saw, she saw more than what she needed to see. They were there to do a, a drug transaction, either buy some drugs or to sell a large quantity of drugs. Uh, while in the midst of doing that drug transaction, uh, Honey walked in and she saw too much. These are the actual crime scene photos, most too graphic for us to show you on national television. Those are the shell casings from the bullets that killed Honey. There are shoe prints on the front door and in the gravel, and outside, blood drops. But it was not Honey's blood. We talked to a neighbor that saw the suspects leave the apartment. There was a confrontation in the parking lot, and he believes that one of the suspects was shot in the leg because his buddy was helping him into the car. So what's clear from the description that the cops have given is that whoever shot Honey wanted her dead because Honey was shot in the back trying to leave the apartment, and then she was shot again in the chest, and that was the fatal, fatal gunshot. That's the one that killed her. Right. So do you find it odd, Lonnie, that that Honey was then dragged all the way back to the back bedroom into a closet and dumped there while there were two people supposedly tied up in, in the bathroom? This whole story, which apparently comes from this couple in the apartment, does not make sense. And first of all, I want to ask you the question, the couple in the apartment, they say it's a man and a woman. They never identify them by name. Is the man in that couple Mercy that we're talking yeah. about? Or is, okay, so there's yes. Mercy, yes. and then there's a woman in the apartment. Is that yes. correct? Okay. Correct. According to the police, Mercy was one of the people in the apartment, one of the people who was tied up. Okay. So the story that they give is that these pe- three to six people, right there, it seems strange that they couldn't be sure on how many people were breaking into this small apartment, but three to six people come in and tie them up with whatever they can find, put them in the bathtub. And then they hear these screams and gunshots, right? They're going on in the front door. And Mm -hmm. the police say that the door had been kicked in, that there was a footprint on the door. So imagine Honey's coming to this apartment. She sees the door kicked open with the, you know, with the footprint. Can probably look at and see all these people. It does not make sense that she would continue to walk in at that point. Um, unless she just barely had come in and then turned and was leaving and they shot her immediately. Why would they shoot her so quickly? They don't know what she has to do with this situation. Why would they shoot her in the back unless they were expecting her to come, um, unless they had lured her there for a purpose? It doesn't make sense that they would shoot her so quickly. And then they drag her into the apartment, according to the police, that the second shot through her chest is given to her after she's dragged and dumped in the, in the closet in the back of the apartment, and then she's shot through the chest. So all of that doesn't make sense if she's literally just a quick, innocent bystander coming in and leaving really quickly. She sees something wrong and taking off. It sounds more like the people there were expecting her or they suspected her of something or they wanted to lure her in for some reason. And Lonnie, I think that you're picking up on something that the mom picked up on in real time that night. She said that before Honey left, that she was acting um, a little unusual in the sense that she was kind of um, very needy and emotional and huggy. Um, Here's a clip 
let the mom describe in her own words how Honey was acting that night. Well, she didn't really say where she was going. Then she came back in like two minutes or three minutes. And I'm like, oh, okay. She said, no, I just wanted you to know that I love you and I'll be right back. She had to walk all the way around our place to come and tell me how much she loved me. And it's like, where is this coming from? I mean, not that she didn't say I love you all the time, but it was just weird. It's something was just strange. Both the mother and the sister feel very strongly like you that this story does not add up because their feeling is something more went down in that apartment and it was perhaps more personal as to why Honey was killed. Police say it's that she saw something and was a liability. Now, that's possible. She was friends with these people. I mean, she knew that they sold drugs. They were gangsters. I mean, they were everything. Um, certainly not the kind of people you'd want your kid to hang out with, but it's the lure of that exciting life for a lot, for a lot of people, you know, with, without question. I don't think that Honey believed by any means that she was ever in danger or she wouldn't have gone over there. And she hung out there a lot. And that's the part we don't know, Lonnie. The other thing I find bizarre, Lonnie, is that if this really were an armed robbery and they were there to get the drugs and or money, they didn't take the drugs or the money. Still yeah. there. Yeah, this whole thing about a home invasion robbery, I mean, was it they were tr- a drug deal gone bad? Was it that they were going to steal the drugs and the money? But like you said, nothing was taken, apparently. No one was hurt at all except for Honey, who was this, you know, sort of outsider coming in. And then she's killed. So it, it, it just doesn't smell right, the story that Mercy and the woman are telling about how this went down. The other thing is, the one thing that was taken from the apartment was Honey's cell phone. And that was found later by police about half a mile away. Why would anyone take Honey's cell phone and then dump it half a mile away? Okay, so that to me makes it clear that at least there were other people involved, which is why I'm glad the police are still looking for other accomplices, because one, the murder weapon's never found, right? So the gun that was used to shoot Honey is taken away from the scene. So I don't think that Mercy necessarily had time to go dump it somewhere and come back before they called uh, 911. So we've got somebody taking the gun away and someone taking her phone away. now. People have a lot of things on their phones. So I think that there may be something to do with her phone was one of the reasons perhaps why she was killed. Did they think that she had a video or a photo on her phone that they thought, you know, might be incriminating, either something prior or something that she, you know, took a picture of or a video of right quickly that night? Um, Did they think that there maybe there was some text message back and forth between them and her talking about something that they were afraid she might you know, be able to use to incriminate them. So maybe there was something on that phone um, and that's why they took it away from the scene, right? They kill her, then they take the phone so they can go check it, do whatever they need to do with it, and then they dump it. I'd love to know if the uh, police ever really looked at that phone and tried to figure out, you know, what was on that phone as far as all the data. We know the police got the phone, but we don't know what they found on the phone because they've never released that information. And I think because they're still looking for more accomplices, uh, they're being tight-lipped. And the sergeant said to me last night, because I I was trying to get details from him about what is it that connected Mercy specifically to the killing of Honey. 
And he said, I can't tell you, but as soon as we have our probable cause hearing, I'll be able to tell you a lot more. He expects that to be in a week or so. I have a question, Lonnie. You know, we usually have like arraignments and first arraignments. They're calling this a probable probable cause hearing. Is that different or just George's version of it? That's George's version of it. I mean, that can either, that can be like what we call a preliminary hearing um, where you just essentially put your evidence on in front of a judge. Um, and then the judge determines if the case should continue on, if there's enough evidence there. In one of the reports that I read, it talked about perhaps blood evidence um, was used in being able to justify the, the arrest of Mercy. Did you talk to the detective about that? I did. I did. Um, in the original report, we showed some of the evidence photos of the blood stains that were in the apartment and also leading outside of the apartment, and they collected that evidence at the time. They said that there was no hit on CODIS, which is, um, you know, the the Justice Department's uh, central database for DNA. And I said, well, that's kind of weird. Why didn't that pop then? And he said, because maybe who we were looking for was not in the system yet and his DNA had not been in the system. So that's one thing that they say tied mercy to the killing. He also said they did more forensic tense, more forensic testing on the bloodstains through the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They were a big part of getting this hit. Um, And so there's more evidence there. He says the primary evidence right now on why they arrested Mercy is blood evidence. Okay, so, okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think what might have also helped them in this area, because back in eight years ago when this first happened, you know, the DNA, um, um, testing has just exponentially increased in its accuracy and what it can do. Um, and then there's also something that's just come out recently called MVAC. Have you heard of this? Oh, the, the extraction. Yes. Yeah. So they used to be able to um, collect DNA by swabbing or taping or scraping or cutting. But now they're using this MVAC, which is essentially like a wet vacuum and they use that to vacuum the um, blood sample, and they're able to get more DNA, a lot more DNA out of it. So that might have been why now they're able to get a better sample, a better DNA extraction from whatever blood that they did collect, and that's helping them to be able to get better matches that way. You know what? That's probably true. I, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. I know that the sergeant really wanted to share, you yeah. know, just because we've known each other for a few years and met yeah. over this case. Um, that will be fascinating. Now, here's the other thing I find interesting about this, Lonnie. Mercy, who was in the apartment when this happened, obviously you'd think he would have more information. Um, but also, when I did my report three years ago, Mercy was already someone that the police were zeroing in on, on someone who knew much more. Here's more from that investigation. I would say a main person of interest in this case would be Mercy. Based on the statements that I've reviewed and the evidence that I've looked at, he was very deep into the dope gang. It seems like he ran the business out of that house. So my question to you, Lonnie, is if three years ago the police already identified Mercy as the most likely person to have killed Honey, why did it take so long to finally arrest him? They were, well, it sounds like they just needed that actual physical evidence to link him to it, right? Because they believe, look, he probably knew what was going on. He, you know, apparently was the head, they thought, of this drug um, 
program, whatever the, the right, that, that uh, business right there. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. That drug group. And so they figured if anybody was in charge of it, if anybody knew it was going on, it would be him. But to actually be able to then link him to the killing, they need that evidence. They need either that blood evidence or, you know, if there was GSR in his hands or something like that. And apparently until now, they just didn't have that to link them to it. The other interesting thing is, you know, the mom said after this arrest, she said, look, this is somebody that I've been telling the police all these years. You know, you've got to talk to him. You've got to talk to him. She had tried to talk to him and he wouldn't talk to her. And you think, here's this man who says he's a friend of Honey, right? And he's there in the house. He's supposedly a victim, the way he's saying it, that he was tied up by these people. You'd think he would be saying, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. This is what happened. It was terrible. But he wouldn't even talk to the mom. So right there, right? That would be driving the mom crazy. And when I was in Georgia, I tried to talk to Mercy and several other people who were associated somehow that night. Of course, he blew me off. He didn't want to talk to me. But what happened is after our investigation aired, then he had a lot to say. He ended up sending an email to the producer of the piece at Crime Watch Daily. And I pulled up that email. Most of it is rambling and doesn't make any sense. And it's filled with profanities. But there were two pieces that I could pull out of that email to share with everyone. So one of his quotes is, I seen both episodes for the people who really know me. Y'all know what's up. I'm the sweetest, funniest, craziest bleep, you know. So that's one thing. He didn't like how he was portrayed Mm -hmm. because he sees himself differently. Mm -hmm. And then he also said, this one to me was the most interesting quote. I want justice damn near as much because I was a victim my damn self. Yes, honey saved me that night. I am forever hurting about that. Honey saved him. Wow, that's weird. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Very strange. Now, the mother, like you said, has always tried, the mother and the sister have always tried to reach out to everyone in this group to see what they could find. And in fact, the lead investigator on this case said to me that it wasn't just the police work, it was that the mother would never, ever give up and pressured the police constantly to stay on her daughter's murder. So he credits the mother maybe more than investigators for getting mercy. But, you know, the mother and the sister admit that Honey did make friends with the wrong group of people, obviously. But just because you have friends in that world in no way ever justifies you being killed. I mean, it increases your risk of perhaps getting into some extraneous trouble and you may not be involved just because you're there. Right. But nonetheless, you know, you know, she was young and she was impressionable. She was 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. She was, you know, she, and you see that it's sad because, you know, it's not that you're judging people by their friends, but you know, you tell, you tell your kids, look, if you're hanging around with people who are doing this stuff, even if you're not doing it, you can end up being as the, I think the police officer described honey as you know, collateral damage in the most blunt of terms. I mean, she, there's no evidence whatsoever that she was involved in any of that stuff. They was, these were just friends of hers that she was hanging out with, but she's the one who paid with her life because of it, you know, and, and that's just tragic. 
It's so tragic because her mother and sister are such lovely, lovely people. You can only imagine how lovely Honey was. And it's a hole that will always be there forever. And, you know, you can tell that they're still in shock about this. Uh, Since the arrest of Mercy, Honey's mother, Flora Malone, told a local television station that she was still shaking from the news. And she said that she's obviously upset that for all these years, like you said, that Donald Ash, a.k.a. Mercy, has been out there living his life to the fullest while his poor, while her poor honey, you know, has been in a grave. Uh, all not fair at all. Uh, I, I also believe that um, it's very unsettling to the family. Uh, you must have seen this a lot because while there is initial excitement that there's been an arrest, then there's that um, that realization that maybe your work is coming to an end as the crusader and defender of your daughter and trying to get um, her murderer arrested. Yeah, but I think in this case in particular, um, they realize there's a lot more work to do. This is essentially just the beginning. There's more arrests that need to be made. Um, more people need to come forward, as as Honey's mom said. Please, you know, there's still time for you to talk. You know, get it off your chest. Make it, you know, come in. And you'll feel better. We'll all feel better. Um, tell what you know. There's more arrests to be made, and then, sadly, it is a long process getting through the criminal justice system. Whether you know a plea deal is worked out or it goes to trial, so there's still a number of years. And and you're right though, because the victim's family, and that's why there are support groups for victims' families who go through this because it is such an all-consuming, lifelong process that you're working through. And and right now, you know, these last eight years, as as difficult as it's been, Honey's mother has had something to focus on, you know, to work on and to, you know, to to put her um, emphasis on and to feel like, okay, I need to get there, I need to get there. And now, like you said, now that the arrest has happened, now what? Now she's got to move into the next phase. And it's, you know, it's, it's, such a long thing. And people always talk about, oh, well, now they're getting closure. And the victim's families always tell me, look, it, there's no closure. There's never a point in the process where you feel like there's closure. You might learn to live with it better so that you can move on with your life a little bit. But it's not like the arrest doesn't give you closure. when they're If they're convicted and they go to prison, you don't feel that huge sense of relief. It's not like, you know, what you would expect. It's just like, okay, that's one more thing to now move on from. So it, it's, it's just a horrible tragedy for anyone to go through. It is. On to our next case, which is actually still evolving. This is a very unusual one. Um, this is about a woman from Jupiter, Florida, who has disappeared, is presumed dead, and her husband has been arrested. This is the case of husband David Anthony. He was arrested Uh, in Las Cruces, New Mexico on March 31st. What is interesting about that is that on March 20th, his wife, Gretchen Anthony, disappeared. And apparently he was the last one to see her alive. So Lonnie, on a case that is really so fresh, if you will, you know, only a few weeks and there is no body, the police must have something. Otherwise, how could they have filed murder charges without a body? Right. And, and, you know, a lot of times um, in cases like this, law enforcement will actually wait, wait until they find the body at least longer than two weeks. It's only been, you know, essentially two weeks or so. But um, in this case, they must have other information besides what you need from the body. And remember, when you find the body, 
you know, that there's so much evidence there that tells, you know, the cause of death, perhaps, you know, when it happened, how it happened, who did it. But there must be other evidence that they have either from his statements or other witnesses, perhaps, you know, cell phone data. Um, and then we also know that they just found her car yesterday. So her car was found in the parking lot of a medical center in Jupiter, which is their hometown. Um, and there could be a lot of evidence in there as well. We don't know much about what was going on with this couple, but we know a little bit. We know that they recently filed for divorce. And that is usually the kind of thing that, you know, always perks the ears of investigators because how many times do we see this, that divorce or infidelity and jealousy are often the causes of, um, you know, these murders between couples or married couples. Exactly. And I always try to warn women who are in, um, you know, domestic violence situations or do, you know, feel unsafe in that situation. It's at the time when you're trying to leave. It's at the time when you say, I'm leaving, I'm getting divorced. You start making plans to split. That's when the violence and the danger goes up even higher because, you know, all of a sudden this person, your abuser realizes, wait a minute, they're serious. They're actually going to try and leave me. And that's when you have to be extremely careful. They were married in March of 2015 in Nevada, and then they filed for divorce at the end of February. And apparently they had both signed the papers for the divorce petition sometime in January. Uh, the divorce remains open, but I would say that's actually moot right now because um, he's a widower, <laughs> yeah. whether um, he killed her or not. Um, police have you know, been very, very vague about what was going on between them. Uh, they've been very vague about the individuals themselves. Uh, I find that interesting. But one thing we do know is a little bit of history on David Anthony prior to his wife's disappearance. And this is where the creepy stuff starts to come out. So Palm Beach County authorities say that David Anthony was arrested by Riviera Beach police on March 15th. Remember, she disappeared on the 20th. So this is five days before her disappearance. And that he was charged with resisting an officer with violence. Now, according to published reports, David Anthony was arrested in the early hours of March 15th after someone reportedly said he was acting suspiciously around young girls in a public beach on Singer Island. And they said that he was sweating profusely and that he was approaching 15-year-old girls. That is just wrong and that is creepy because this guy is 43 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of red flags go up there. And then the officer said... Also, that apparently while they were keeping an eye on him, they noticed that the black electric tape had been used to alter his vehicle tag and turning a six to an eight. And so they asked him about that. And he said that perhaps it was his 12-year-old stepdaughter who was responsible because she allegedly liked to play with tape. And so then, they, you know, all the bells were going off for these police officers as they were watching him. So they, he tried to leave. And so things escalated. And when they tried to arrest him and put handcuffs on him, um, one, one had to actually hold him at gunpoint because he was re resisting arrest. And when the other officer went to try and put handcuffs on him, he reportedly leaped into his car and repeatedly slammed the door on the officer's arm. I mean, that's... And that yeah, that officer had to go to the hospital because of the injuries um, on her arm. 
Um, that is very, very strange behavior. And then, um, so what ends up happening is he spends a few days in jail because he finally posts his bond on March 18th. That is now two days before his wife's disappearance. And one can only wonder, did they maybe have an argument over what just happened? What really happened? Yeah. Isn't that possible? Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember, too, I, I think that it's interesting that the divorce papers were signed in January. They were filed in February and still they hadn't been completed. It was still an open case. So perhaps, you know, this arrest and him going to, you know, being taken into custody and then getting out and then she finds out about it. And that might have just been like the last straw. Like she says, I am done. This is it. We're pushing forward. We're done with this. And, you know, that might have been the trigger. Who knows? Well, this is a developing case. Hopefully we'll learn a lot more information after the authorities examine her car and we will keep you posted and do updates and hopefully they will find Gretchen's body. It's time for our comments section and all of our crimes today in the comments section are related to the coronavirus pandemic in a very odd way. So our first case is the wife of a mayor in Illinois is arrested at a party and cited for violating the stay at home order. Do you love this irony? Oh my goodness. This cracks me up. <laughs> it really does. So Mayor Brant Walker of Alton, Illinois, said that his wife, Shannon Walker, was arrested early Saturday morning at a party at a local pub. What ended up happening was that they had noticed in this town that not everyone was obeying the stay-at-home order, and there was a local tavern that refused to close. So the mayor said to the police chief, hey, I want you to start enforcing this. So when they went to the tavern, they found the mayor's wife in there enjoying, <laughs> I guess, a cocktail or a beer. <laughs> I don't know. So the mayor has said, my wife is an adult capable of making her own decisions. She now faces the same consequences, her ill-advised decision as other individuals who choose to violate the stay-at-home order during this incident. So she's getting no special treatment on this one, Lonnie. You know, I'm laughing about this because I think this gives a, a really deep insight into their marriage. <laughs> Perhaps they didn't want everybody to know about. But uh, the situation to me, I, I have to tell you, as as I'm going on days and days being in quarantine and you are going on days and days, when I see people out like that, I, I'm not an angry person, but I get really upset because it's like people that are doing that are extending it for all of us. We're all yes. going to have to stay quarantined longer because they continue to violate the rules and go out there. So I can, I feel for this mayor because it's like, oh my goodness, you know, even my wife isn't paying attention, but it is going to take, you know, law enforcement to step in apparently for some people to just recognize how serious this is. And the comments seem to reflect your feelings. Olivia Kay writes, I really respect him for not giving special treatment. Lorraine L writes, oh, He's sleeping on the couch for a long time. And Letty P <laughs> writes, she broke the law. The rules are the same for everyone, or at least, of course, they should be. So mm -hmm. I think everyone's in agreement on that one. Yeah. All right. We have another coronavirus-related crime incident here. This one, everybody is talking about. This is the man who gets handcuffed by the police in front of his daughter at a Colorado park for allegedly violating social distancing. So it was the husband, the wife, and the daughter 
in the park. Okay, the park was closed, uh, but they were allowed to walk, run, or whatever. So this is a family that lives together, and the police decided to arrest him because he was violating the social distancing law. But what I don't understand is if you live with these people, why would you social distance from the people you share a house with? Exactly. Plus, apparently, you know, on the sign that said that the park was closed in small letters below, it said, except if you're going to be hiking or walking and in groups of four or less. So this was three and they were social isolating social, you know, so yeah, isolating together. So they could be together. Right. So you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It, it all seemed OK. And I to be honest with you, I think what happened here is the police went up and talked to him and maybe the guy failed the attitude test. I'm not sure. I think they asked him for his ID and he didn't want to show him the ID. And so it it escalated quickly. But based on their behavior, there was absolutely no reason that I see based on the rules that have been laid out for why he would be arrested. Right. Yeah. So his name is Matt Mooney. He's 33 years old. And, And I guess when this was happening, two things were going on. The daughter kept saying to him, Daddy, Daddy, are you going to be arrested? And he's saying, no, I'm not going to be arrested. And then there was a council person who happened to be at the other end of the park. So he videotaped everything as it was going on. And even the council person said, this is ludicrous. This is absolutely ludicrous. Why is this man, you know, being handcuffed and arrested for violating this? He thought it was insane. And, and, And the man um, Mr. Mooney, Matt Mooney kept saying that what he wanted was an apology because he thought it was an overreaction on the side of the police. And I believe he got one today. Yes, I think it was today or yesterday, I believe the Brighton police apologized to him and said that it was evident there was some overreaching by the police officers, which I think was a good move by them. I also think that they might want to think about having their officers be wearing gloves and masks when they're out interacting with the public because they should be doing that as well, right? They weren't wearing um, masks or gloves. And then when they went in to arrest this man, they were violating the social distancing. So I think there's some improvement there that needs to be made. Yeah. The father said, if anything, he felt that he had been exposed because they were being aggressive and they were close and they weren't wearing masks or gloves. And I don't really know what the rules are as far as I don't know whether it's really possible for police officers to be wearing masks. I don't know if that's really a reasonable thing for them to do. You don't want anything that obstructs their ability to see or do anything, right? That could right, that could it, be cumbersome. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, in these times when you're going around to the, you know, to the local neighborhood park. <laughs> Yes. I think perhaps they could be a little more careful. Yes, but I I will say just, and I agree that they went too far, but really if they were asking for his ID and he refused to present it, he wasn't making the, the dad wasn't making the situation any easier on anybody. Right. And I know there's a lot of strong feelings on both sides of that question. You know, should you have to show your ID or not? And I just, you know, for me, it's safer for everyone. And it's a very minimal intrusion of privacy to just, here's my ID. You know, it's kind of part of living in a civilized society where we all kind of have to follow the basic rules of, you know, courtesy and and the police are trying to do their job. You know, show your ID. It keeps everyone safe. So these are the comments. Uh, Becky V writes, I don't feel sorry for him. Now he wants attention. Abide by the rules. And when an officer asks for your ID, give it to them. It's very simple. Absolutely. 
Bryn T writes, if you stay home, you won't have to worry about being cuffed in front of anyone. Mm -hmm. And Melody J writes, seems daughter is better at being an adult than dad is. Yeah, that could be true. All right. And then our final coronavirus related crime of the day. A paddleboarder is arrested in Malibu, right off the Malibu Pier, for violating the stay-at-home order. A paddleboarder was arrested in Malibu, ignoring the lifeguard orders to get out of the ocean. Now, there are two things here. We originally had the beaches open in Los Angeles County and the city, but then because everyone was stuck at home, they were flocking to the beaches just like they were in South Florida on spring break. So government officials closed all the beaches. So Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to even be walking on the beach. And we know in order to be on a paddle boat in the ocean, you had to have gone on the beach to get to the ocean once he helicoptered in. So this person had violated that and the Coast Guard came in and arrested him. Now, the question is, did they go too far or did they use him as an example to say, we're serious about this, so just don't do it? Yeah, I I think it was definitely the example because they had to bring the boat in, right? They're trying to call him in. He won't come in. So the lifeguards have to call for their boat that's down in Marina Del Rey to come all the way in to then once the boat shows up, apparently he swims into shore. But there was a picture taken, right? With the iconic Malibu Pier and then the boat and then the paddle border. And it was just like, it was such a picture for our times, right? Right now that there, we really have to go to these extremes to make sure that everybody is safe. And you know, if one person goes out there and it looks like he's going to be able to do it, then another person's going to go out there. Then, another, you know, that's the way we work. Every, you know, everybody wants to be doing that. So you got you to stop it right there. I, I think that that picture spoke a thousand words. Yes. So these are the comments. Mia W. writes, doesn't look like he's near anyone. So that is social distancing, LOL. <laughs> I was actually thinking that. It's like, well, he is kind of out in the ocean. I mean, how is he going to get coronavirus out there? But I, I realize that he... He went on the beach when it was closed. Uh, Christina L. writes, for those of you saying, well, he was clearly alone, that would be me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's because they closed all the beaches. Before that, the waters and the beaches were packed, right? Mm -hmm. We just discussed that. He is alone because he is choosing to trespass after the state locked us all down. And Mary Beth F. writes, obviously the laws don't pertain to him. So. All right. So those are all our coronavirus related crimes. (laughs) Uh, We've come to the end of this episode. Lonnie, I'm just curious, what what are you doing to keep yourself sane since we can't really go out? Yeah, you know, uh, um, on the one hand, I feel so grateful, you know, that I have a place to stay that's safe. Um, And so I I don't want to com- sound like I'm complaining in any way at all, right? Because I think that for, for those of us who are lucky enough to have a place um, that's safe and that we have food and that we don't have to worry about, you know, a, a, things that a lot of people are worried about, like, you know, how am I going to get my next meal? Or perhaps I'm not in a safe environment. So, um, but then there's the, you know, the anxiety that, that goes on constantly, just that constant level. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest. I have just to turn my brain off to go to sort of my happy place. I've been binge watching shows, you know, Netflix Mm -hmm. and and all different shows. I I get on my treadmill and I literally just set it on walk and I'll just walk and watch for an hour or two because it just, I know it just, it literally just takes my mind away. And at least I'm walking. So I feel like I'm getting steps. (laughs) I'm not just laying on the couch all day. I'm doing that later, but, um, 
and I've been watching some really amazing shows. So that's, and it just takes my mind off of it. I, it's funny, I don't want to watch anything like lighthearted. For some reason, I feel like I have no patience with that right now. So I'm getting into really like, you know, intense, you know, crime dramas or documentaries, something that will literally like make my mind work on something else besides what's going on right now. So how about wow. you? What are you doing? Um, well, actually, my yoga teacher from the Y, I'm a member of the Y in Hollywood, um, she started doing yoga on Zoom. And so she's oh. holding her class at the same time that she would always hold it at the Y. And she's invited all her students to do this. And, um, you know, when you start really focusing and I hear her voice, because she's been my teacher for like eight years, for, for those few minutes that I just follow her instructions and I hear her, I am, I am transfixed and I am focused and I am not dealing with this. So it's actually been really healing more mentally than physically, actually. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. wonderful. That's yeah, it's been really, and it's nice to see everybody, you know, in the gallery of Zoom, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, they're so-and-so from class. I don't remember her name, but it's nice to see you, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to reach out to you or follow you or find you, how can they find you, Lonnie? Uh, I'm under Lonnie Coombs. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you okay. can also go to oxygen.com. I've got some shows on there if you want to check those out. Terrific. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you all. Uh, we want to remind you that you can always find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and of course on YouTube. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter on truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And we remind you every week, don't do crime. Don't do crime.